We are going to be continuing in our study in the book of Genesis. Uh, we'll actually be in Genesis chapter 4. We finished up the first three chapters. And it's important to remember as we dig into Genesis every single week, that Genesis is a story. We can think of this as a novel. We can think of this in a very real way like a, like a movie we're watching. There are plot points along the way. The story wants to move along at a particular pace, and so there's going to be different things introduced, people, different people introduced, different themes and topics introduced throughout the story, and so we should treat it like it is a story. Typically, when you're reading a novel or you're watching a movie, the first few minutes of that movie or the first few chapters of that novel are setting the scene for us. They're telling us and describing for us, what does all of this stuff look like and that's what we've seen in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. God creates this world. He, he places his kingdom on this earth. He creates men and women to be his image bearers, to care for and take care of this creation that he's made, this kingdom, and to rule and have authority over it. Chapter 2, we saw men and women are united with one another. Adam says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. They're united together in relationship with one another. And then what we saw last week is there's tension that comes along. The devil comes along, the serpent comes, and he tricks Eve, and, they, and Eve eats from the tree that's been forbidden. She gives it to Adam, and he eats as well. And so they disobey God, and God punishes them. And so for the first time in Genesis chapter 3, we find sin has entered this perfect creation. So then we enter chapter 4, and we come to this transition point. Because what we've seen so far, and I think what we will flesh out not only tonight, but through the rest of the book of Genesis, is there's a battle that's happening. A battle that we don't even see, but a battle between what is good and what is evil. You have the serpent, the devil, who wants to rule this world, have authority over all things, and so he tricks God's perfect creation to sin. His effort in doing that is to have rule over these things, to prove God wrong. But what does God say in Genesis 3.15? Chris went over this last week, that the seed of the woman would come, and what would he do? He would crush the head of the serpent. That the devil would not have authority, that, that one would come who would crush the serpent, crush the devil, and so now, as we see Genesis unfold, what we'll see is this battle between good and evil play out, where the devil is trying everything he can to ensure that that promise does not happen. He does not want to see the seed of the woman come and destroy him. Instead, he wants to see himself reign. He wants his own seed, his own descendant, his own line of evil and wickedness rule and reign across this world. The battle between good and evil plays out, but it doesn't play out as we often think of it in these big cosmic battles, unseen things, although that most likely happens. What we see as we look through Genesis is that it plays out in the very lives and relationships and stories of the Bible. So this battle and this tension between good and evil, the line and seed of the woman, the line and seed of the serpent are going to clash continually and it plays out in the lives of very prominent people in history, very prominent people in the Bible that we'll see. Genesis chapter 4 begins with Adam and Eve. 
begins with Adam and Eve. And if you remember from last week, they both just sinned, they disobeyed God, and so God does what? He sends them out of the Garden of Eden. He says, the, the ground is going to be cursed before you, Adam, Eve, here, here are all of the things that you're going to be dealing with as well. And he sends them out. And we begin chapter four with these words. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. So what are they doing is they are fulfilling the mandate that God gave them to be fruitful, multiply the earth. So even though they've sinned, even though they've gone contrary to what God's desire is for them, they here in Genesis 4 are doing what God had instructed them to do, doing what God had commanded them to do. They're fulfilling this creation mandate. What's recorded for us and what we'll see is that they have two sons at this point in time. What's likely, though, is that they actually had many children. The Bible references for us Cain and Abel, but they likely had many more children who had many more children and had families, and there were people all throughout that area of the world at that time. When I had originally thought, like, learned this in elementary school, growing up through Sunday school, church, I always had this picture that these were like teenagers living at home. So you had Adam and Eve, the parents, you had Cain and Abel, they're all just these four people living at this time. But it's likely that there were potentially dozens of people alive at this point. We don't know. We're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. It focuses on these two, but it's likely that there were other children living at this time. So they are fulfilling this call, fulfilling this desire that God has to multiply the earth. You notice in verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife, knew Eve his wife, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we have to wonder at this point, what's going through Eve's mind? Sometime before Cain is born, Eve has just been cursed because of sin. The child she had should have been a smooth, easy, painless birth, except because of her sin, she has a difficult, challenging, painful birth. So she's just received the, the curse from God because of sin, but she wasn't only cursed. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we've already referenced it. She was given a promise that your offspring, Eve, would one day crush the serpent. So we have to wonder as Eve is holding this baby in her arms and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, we have to wonder if she's looking at this little boy and thinking, that's the promise being fulfilled. That this little boy is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, that he's going to right all of the wrongs. The times where we were able to walk with God in the garden, we're going to get back to that because of this little boy right here, because of Cain. Her offspring, Eve's child, would fix all of this, would make it all go back to the way it was before. Cain's name literally means, if we were to, to look through and pull apart what the Hebrew means, it actually means to get or to receive, to acquire. And the idea is that she has been given, she has been gifted this, this son from God. So Cain, Cain's name literally means this is, a, this is a gift that God has given Eve. That's how Eve views this. 
And I think ultimately what it does is it demonstrates Eve's faith. She believed that Genesis 3.15 would happen. She believed it would happen immediately. We know that that didn't happen. But she believed that it would. I think it demonstrates her faith that she's saying, this child that I am, that I am getting is a gift from God to fulfill this prophecy, to fulfill this promise. She's acknowledging that the baby is from God, and I would argue that she believes Cain is that fulfillment. But really the point in, in the way it's worded, and the way it's structured, is to say, Eve had faith. She trusted in this God. We move along a little bit in the story. Down in verse 2, and it says, And again, she bore his brother Abel. She bore his brother Abel. Abel's name means fleeting or meaningless. Fleeting or meaningless, which I'd like us all to keep in mind. Just remember that because I think it's relevant to the story. So Abel's name means meaningless, fleeting. And she has now Cain and she has Abel, two sons. And again, like, like I said previously, I thought these are probably like teenage years, just young adults maybe. But the picture you get from Genesis chapter 4 is that these were adults. These were grown men. They have careers, possibly have families. We don't know. We don't know all of the details and the, the implications of things because the text doesn't reveal them. So a lot of what we do in this space is speculate. But ultimately, we know that they both pursued careers. Cain, he's a farmer. It says in verse 2, Cain is a worker of the ground. Abel, the younger brother, he's a shepherd, takes care of sheep. So they both go their own different, their own different ways. They're doing their own things. And we don't know why. We don't, we don't know the reason for it, but as you continue in the story in verse 3, it says, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock. We don't, we don't know why, but for whatever reason, they had this desire to bring an offering to worship God. I'm sure they were told all the stories from Adam and Eve. Every, every story they had of walking in the garden with God, how they were kicked out of the garden, I'm sure they told all of those things to their sons. And so they had instilled with them this desire, this, this purpose, to go and to offer something to God. So they come to God. They bring their offerings. Cain logically brings offering from the fruit of the ground. So he's bringing what he's produced. He's a farmer. He produces crops. He brings what he's produced. Abel, a shepherd, brings what he produced. The firstborn of the flock, the fat portions of the animal. So Abel brings an animal. Cain brings some vegetables and some fruit. And that's all the text gives us. It doesn't tell us the extravagance of the offerings. It doesn't tell us that Cain's fruit was the biggest fruit that was available. It doesn't tell us that Abel's animal was the best and the brightest sheep that was ever found. It doesn't give us any of those things. It doesn't elaborate on the extravagance of the offering or describe that. It just says they bring an offering to God. And we have to wonder what their relationship was like as well. 
Because what we'll see, their, their relationship obviously wasn't good. These, these were not friendly, chummy, buddy-buddy brothers. I think that's pretty evident from the text. A lot of my family's here today. And we've all had a good time. We've, we've enjoyed each other the last couple of days. But you, you get the sense of like family when all of you together. But sometimes when family's together, there's strife that comes up. There's conflict that happens. And, and clearly, based on how Cain and Abel are interacting, and specifically Cain's interacting, because we don't really hear anything. Abel doesn't speak through any of this. No words are spoken from this man. But these, these brothers obviously had some type of conflict. Whatever it was over, we don't know. Perhaps Abel was the, the brother that Adam and Eve always liked. He was the one that was always good at all the stuff. He's the one who always had success. And so they're like, Cain, why can't you just be more like Abel? We, we know that. My mom's like, yeah, why can't you just be more like your brother? That's what my mom's thinking right now. Yeah, I know. I know how that, that goes. Or, or Cain's, Cain's like, you know, you know, Abel's the one who always has success with everything. I have to fight to get just the smallest amount of crops. And Abel's got all of these sheep. He's a successful one. So there's, there's this strife. There's this conflict. And if, if this conflict existed, again, we're just purely speculating because the text doesn't tell us. If there was some level of conflict where Cain had some level of animosity towards Abel, what happens next in the story, I think ultimately, um, is the final straw for Cain. Verses four and five, it says, the Lord, so that they offer these offerings to God in verses four and five, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This isn't mom and dad saying, Cain, why can't you be more like Abel? This isn't Cain being jealous about how Abel's more successful than him. This is the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who has authority over all things, the one who they've heard stories of since they were little children, saying, Cain, I do not favor you. I pick Abel. I favor Abel. Much ink has been spent, many books have been written, articles have been written to try to answer the question, why? Why would God choose one brother over the other? Why would God say, no to Cain, you and your offering are rejected, Abel, you and your offering are accepted, why would he do this? Some people would argue it's the content of the offerings. Some people would say, well, Abel brought a blood sacrifice, so that's why you, you look at the Old Testament, you look at the sacrificial system, blood is required in order to, for, to receive forgiveness of sins. And so God chose Abel because of the very nature of the, the content of the offering. Cain just brought fruits and vegetables. That's not a blood offering. And so that's why. I don't think that's the best explanation. I'll give you two reasons why. First, the word offering here is used, is, is a very generic word. It's, a, it's the most generic word you can use for sacrifice or offering in the, in the Old Testament. There are words used to describe animal offerings or blood offerings that if Moses wanted to, he would have used that word. But he didn't. He uses a generic word. Second, 
The law allows for non-blood offerings. We won't turn to it, but Leviticus chapter 2, an entire chapter is spent on grain offerings that you can give. So there are offerings that you can give in the law that don't need to be an animal that God approves of and accepts of. And so it seems not right. It seems not best to say it's the content of the offerings. So then you come back to the question, why did God accept one but not accept the other? And ultimately, it doesn't come down to a difference in the content. It doesn't come down to the difference in the offering. It ultimately comes down to a difference in the brothers. In Genesis chapter 4, Hebrew writing is very unique. It's, it's unlike how we write. But the order of words is very important in Hebrew writing. The way you word things and the order in which you word things is very, very important. And so when you read chapters four and five, or verses 4 and 5 in chapter 4, it says, The Lord had regard for what? Or better yet, the Lord had regard for who? The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The word order is important because what Moses is trying to do is to emphasize, is to highlight the first thing he mentions. It's not that God had regard for Abel's offering. It's that God had regard for Abel. It's not that God did not have regard for Cain's offering. It's he did not have regard for Cain. There's an important distinction there because the way Hebrew words things and the, the way that it's done is to say, one of these men I accept, one of these men I don't accept, and there's a reason for it. And ultimately, it comes down to one thing, and that's faith. God looks at Abel and his offering of a lamb, of a sheep, and he says, I see faith there. There is a heart attitude behind this offering that says, I trust God. I look at Cain and his fruit, however beautiful it is, and I don't see a heart that has faith. The Old Testament confirms this for us. Actually, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. The faith that Abel had is something God looked at and said, that is righteous faith. That is not something Cain has. And so I can accept and I can have regard for Abel because of the faith that's in his heart. Unlike Cain, who has no faith in his heart. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 tells us the righteous will live by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. So what we find at the beginning of Genesis 4 is a story of two brothers. I think one who is going through the motions of what it means to offer to God. He's been told all of the things to do. He's been told all of the ways to live. His parents have instructed him from a young age. And so he just does it, even though he doesn't believe it. And you have another brother who gives and offers to God out of a heart of faith. God sees through our religious acts. He sees through our attempts to do good stuff just for the sake of doing good stuff. 
He sees through the beautiful fruit. He sees through the beautiful vegetables. And what he does is he draws our attention away from those things. And he says, I don't care about what you think makes you look good. I care what your heart is. I care about your faith. A little sheep offered by Abel. An out-of-tune singing voice that worships God. A heart that wants to pray to God but doesn't know the words to say. An anxious heart that pushes through fear. A confused mind that cries out to God for help. A depressed soul that perseveres through all these things. God is looking for that faith. He's looking for the faith that says, I'm not looking to impress other people. I just want to trust God. And when we live that way, when we live our faith that way, not to impress ourselves, not to impress other people, but simply to show our dependence on God, he looks at that and says, I have regard for that. I love that. We come and we offer ourselves in faith to God, and he says, there is my righteous child. That is my righteous one. Not because of anything you've done, but because you've shown through your faith that you trust me. Do we realize that our faith pleases God? Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So the alternative to that must be true. With faith, it is possible to please God. Positionally, we, we as Christians, God loves us. God loves you. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. He is happy to call you his child. And when we exercise our faith, God is like that parent who looks at his child who's succeeding and thriving and is just proud. We often reduce the Christian life to our inability to ever do good. It's so easy for us to do that. We, we place all this guilt and we carry it on us and say, I can't live up to God's standard. That's true. We can't. We can't live up to God's standard, but the reality is that if you are a Christian, Christ has already lived that standard perfectly for us. He died so that we wouldn't have to meet that standard. We wouldn't have to live perfectly. He died in our place for that purpose. And so when we walk around ashamed and guilt-ridden all the time because we can't live up to what God would want us to do, God's saying, you don't get it. I've already lived that for you. Don't live in guilt. Don't live in shame anymore. You've been freed from all of those things. You've been freed from all of that sin so that you can bring joy to God. Yes, we're sinners, but the Christian life is not one of self-flagellation where you're beating yourself up all the time. Beating yourself down because you're just not good enough. We are sinners. We sin every day. Even, Even the good things we do are tainted by sin. But our sin's been paid for. Our sin's been paid for by the blood of another person. So all of those things can be true at the same time. We can be sinners every single day. We can repent of our sin every single day. And yet God can still be happy with you. Be pleased with you because you are living by faith. We get the privilege to rejoice that our worship in faith pleases God. 
And what we find when we work out our faith is that God is glorified, he is pleased, and ultimately what we learn is that we are satisfied in him. When we come back to Genesis chapter 4, Cain sees God choose Abel, and in verse 5 it says he becomes very angry. The end of verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Is that that is? There we go. Had an extra slide in there. I'll blame it on technical difficulties, even though it was probably my fault. (laughs) Verse 5 says that Cain becomes very angry, his face falls. And I think we're right to say that his anger was directed at God. God's the one who rejected him. The word angry here is the same word that the Old Testament uses, specifically in the books of the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the same word that's used when God multiple times gets angry with Israel. That this anger is burning inside of him. There are times where God opens up the earth to swallow Israel in it because of how disobedient they've been. He's so angry with them. Same word. So Cain is, is intense with his anger. But unlike God, who is righteous in his anger, Cain is at a crossroads in life. Cain's at a crossroads in his life because he's angry with God and God confronts him in this. And in verse seven, he says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? Cain, if you just stop going through the motions here and you show genuine faith, the same regard I had for your brother, I will have for you. But Cain, if you do not do well, the sin is crouching at the door. The imagery most people think of is a large predator, a lion or a tiger who's kind of waiting in the tall grass, waiting in behind the trees, and they're crouching down and they're just ready to launch themselves on that unsuspecting deer or that unsuspecting antelope. And I think that's fair. But in the context, especially of Genesis 3, the imagery that comes to my mind is of a snake in the grass, just sitting there waiting, waiting for the right moment to pounce on that unsuspecting prey. There's a snake in the grass, and when it strikes, God says, sin's desire is contrary to you and you must rule over it. That snake is desiring to rule over Cain. He's contrary to Cain. This isn't good stuff for Cain. Cain is in a bad spot right now, and God's saying, you have a choice to make. You can do well, where you can live in your sin and sit in your sin and it will rule over you. Cain, the gift that Eve received with the help of God, the one who Eve believes is the fulfillment of God's promise to crush the serpent's head, he's at this inflection point. Continue to sit in your anger and the devil will rule you. Or you can go and do well. The word crouching is actually derived from an ancient word that Hebrew uses, and it's actually translated as demon. One of the first translations of this word from Hebrew into English actually translated it this way, sin is the demon at the door. The devil wants to rule us. He wants nothing more than to control all things, including us. His goal is to discredit, disprove everything that God is 
And just as he's deceived Eve, he's lying in wait for Cain. He wants to have authority over him. And each of us, just like Cain is, each of us face our sin and we have this choice to make. Will we live in it? Or will we do well? Will we stay in our sin and allow it to rule over us? Or will we follow God's instructions to have faith and be accepted? Unfortunately, in our story, Cain chooses to stay in his sin. He allows the devil to rule over him. So this gift that Eve received from God, her firstborn son, verse 8 says that he, he takes his brother Abel out to the field and not accidentally, not in just some uncontrollable rage, but in a calculated, premeditated, cold blood fashion. When no one else is around, he kills his brother. He sheds innocent blood, his brother's innocent blood. Abel is mentioned as Cain's brother in connection with that same word. He's mentioned as Cain's brother seven times throughout this chapter. And I think that's intentional because Cain didn't just kill a stranger. He didn't just happen on someone that did him wrong and so he, he killed him. This is his flesh, his blood. The Bible says that he took him to a field when they were in the field. This phrase is actually used in the Old Testament a number of times and it signifies the idea that Cain took him in a premeditated fashion to kill him. He took him to a place where no one would hear when Abel cried out. He took him to a place that there would be no witnesses when he did the act. He knew exactly what he was doing. He picked the time. He picked the place. He knew no one would be around, and he knew he would get away with the crime, and he kills his brother. I think it is an appropriate point in the story to step away from it for a moment and consider the consequences of our own sin. Consider the impacts and the effects that our sin have on other people. We don't know the details of how Abel's body was discovered or if it ever was discovered. We have no idea. But I want us to imagine Adam and Eve's reaction when they find out. They find out that their son has just murdered their other son. The son who they thought was the fulfillment of promise is now murdered Abel. The first people created in the image of God find out that an image bearer has been destroyed. This is the first time this has ever happened. The first murder in the history of the world happens in this chapter. Can you imagine not only the grief over the situation, but perhaps even a measure of guilt? Cain's sinful heart and his sinful nature is present. Why? Because Adam and Eve wish to be like God. They wish to be their own gods. One of the consequences of eating fruit from this tree is that they buried their own son. God told them, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. And when they ate of it, did they die? Spiritually, yes. It became for them a concept. But here, death becomes a reality. Their sin had consequences, not just for the entire human race. All of us are condemned in sin because of their acts, but it had consequences directly and immediately for their own children. Our sin affects other people. Fathers, the way you treat 
your wives, your kids are looking at that. So husbands, if you're treating your wives poorly, don't be surprised when your son grows up emulating those same things. Wives, if you treat your husbands like idiots who know nothing, don't be surprised when your daughter thinks men are just idiots and know nothing. Our sin affects other people. Parents, you treat your kids like an inconvenience and you show no love for them. Don't be surprised when they go find love in other places. Church, if we spend our time gossiping and bickering and fighting amongst each other, talking behind each other's back, we shouldn't be surprised when all of those kids down the hall in that room grow up and walk away from the church and say, you're all hypocrites. We shouldn't be shocked by those things. Our sin affects other people and often it affects, affects them negatively. Now, I want to balance this out because I'm sure some of you are thinking this, and you would be right to think it. We have to address the question, am I saying that Cain is not responsible for his sin? Or, I'll bring it to our context, if you have a child that's run away from faith and living in sin, is it your fault as a parent? The answer to that, both questions, is no. Our sin affects others your sin as a parent impacts your child, but you are not responsible for the sins of anyone else. That's a, it's a very big difference. Cain and Cain alone is responsible for murdering his brother. The sins and the wrongs committed against him can help explain our behaviors. It can help explain our attitudes when someone has sinned against us. But we can never use another person's sin as an excuse for our own sin. A couple of verses from Ezekiel just to kind of nail down this point. Ezekiel 18, 1 to 4. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. I'll sum up this idea. Israel had this proverb that they would say, quoted in verse 2, that the children's sins and their problems were the fault of their parents. The parents sinned, and so now the children are sinning as well, and they're looking back and they're saying, well, it's my parents' fault that I am the way that I am. And God says to Ezekiel, no, not how it works. The soul who sins shall die. Ultimately, we are responsible for our own sin. We can never use the sin of another person to excuse our sin, but parents, spouses, church members, church attenders, while we're not responsible for the sins of others, we do have to say our sin affects others. Our sin impacts other people. So when we do sin, our response to that, and we should be careful to do this, to repent, to ask forgiveness, and to seek restoration in those relationships, wherever they might be. It would be a beautiful thing for husbands and wives to repent and ask forgiveness where we've wronged each other. What a, what a testimony to our children if they're seeing mom and dad repenting and asking forgiveness. Parents, what a beautiful thing it would be to, when you've done wrong, repent and ask forgiveness of your own children. 
What a tremendous testimony to them. This is the gospel lived out. This is the Christian life lived out. I'm going to tell you I've done something wrong and ask for your forgiveness from a child. It's a beautiful thing. We continue in our story. Genesis chapter 4. Cain thought no one was around to hear Abel's screams, witness Abel's murder, but God says, I see all things. He reveals that he sees all things and he confronts Cain with this murder. And if we thought for a moment, maybe Cain is just misunderstood. Maybe he just had a fit of rage. Maybe he's really the victim in all of this. Cain's response to God shows his true colors. God confronts him and he says, where is Abel, your brother? And he just lies. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I supposed to be the one who's watching out for him? I mean, he's an adult after all. He can take care of himself. I think it's right to even say, he kind of points the finger at God a little bit. God, you're the one who has regard for him. You're the one who loves him. Shouldn't you know where he is? Am I responsible for him? You're God. You know, you know all things. You created this world. You created him. Remember, I mentioned before that there's this battle happening between God and Satan. Battle lines are being drawn, and Cain, I think, with these very words, steps over that line and is firmly on the side of the devil. He's murdered his brother in cold blood, hoping no one would see, and when he's confronted by God, he just doubles down in his sin and lies. He doesn't repent. He doesn't seek forgiveness from God. He just lies. Once thought to be the seed of the woman promised in Genesis 3, Cain is just proving himself to be the seed of the serpent, seeking to destroy God's plan. God hears Abel's cry. In verse 10, it says, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. God punishes Cain. It says that he curses Cain. And he says, Cain, you will be exiled from all people. You will go and live as a fugitive and a wanderer in this world. I mentioned earlier Abel's name. I told you to remember it, meaningless. Unfortunately, his name foreshadows his death. Meaningless. Abel's death is meaningless. Innocent blood shed by the hand of his own brother. A son murdered by his blood, and his blood cries out for justice. Abel's death was meaningless. There was no point to it. It was an angry, selfish kid who took out his anger against God on his own brother. Generations after Abel, the son of God would die. And rather than his death being meaningless, the son of God's death is meaningful. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, we read it earlier. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A son killed by his brothers, his blood pouring down his face from thorns driven into his head, blood soaking into and staining the wood of the cross. Innocent blood shed by his angry brothers. The son of God dying on a cross cries a better word to the father than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for so much more justice and mercy and grace and salvation poured out for us. That's the gospel. That Jesus went to that cross, 
shed his blood for our sins so that we might be made right with God. Where Abel's murder resulted in Cain being cursed, the senseless, brutal murder of Jesus brings freedom from the curse. When God says, not what about Abel, but what about Pete? What about Tom? What about Jackie? What about Rachel? What about all of these? Jesus doesn't respond with, am I my brother's keeper? Am I my sister's keeper? No, he says, all of those, they are mine. My blood cries out for them so that they will not face wrath. They will not face judgment. Sin's curse no longer rules over them. They live in freedom because I have set them free. The question for us when we see the gospel is, does this apply to you? Do you believe this? Do you believe that you are a sinner in need of saving and that Jesus is the remedy to that problem? Do you trust that God's blood shed for you will cover your sins? Do you believe this? Do you believe that the blood of Jesus cries out to God and says, that person's mine? Because if you don't, the consequence of unbelief is complete and total separation from God. Not just in this life, but in the life to come. Even in cursing Cain, God shows mercy. Yes, Cain becomes a fugitive and a wanderer in the land, just like God says, but God marks Cain and he says, no one, no one will get revenge for Abel's murder. Verses 17 to 24 actually details the line of Cain. We're not going to go through it verse by verse, but it talks about how Cain's descendants build cities. They craft tools out of iron and bronze. They develop music. They're industrious. Yet for all of their achievements, the culmination of the line of Cain is that they're wicked and that they're evil. The seventh generation from Adam coming from the line of Cain is a man named Lamech. Lamech goes and he murders someone who offended him, who struck him. Murders a man and instead of repenting, he celebrates it. If Cain, his revenge is sevenfold, mine will be seventy and sevenfold. He celebrates the murder of another human being. The seed of the serpent. For all of their accomplishments, they're not even going through the motions like Cain was anymore. They're not even trying anymore. Their wickedness, their sin is just there, and yet they accomplish so much. Reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew, that God makes the sun to rise on good and evil, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God gives them common grace. He gives them the grace to do all of these things, to build cities, to be industrious. The unjust, the evil ones, they, they prioritize themselves and their own achievements. And in doing this, what did Cain's descendants say? They say, we don't need God. We are completely independent. Seven generations after Adam, and they're celebrating murder. Before we think that the seed of the serpent wins, we go to verses 25 and 26, the last two verses of the chapter. And we see that Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. 
Seth has a son named Enosh. Enosh's name means weakness. While Cain's line looks powerful, it looks great. They're building cities. They're doing all of this stuff. From the outside, they look wonderful. The line of Seth, the weak ones, Scripture tells us at that time they began to call on the name of God. They began to call on the name of the Lord. Because Seth's line wasn't focused on great personal achievements. They weren't focused on showing how independent they are. Seth's line recognized that they have a need for dependence on God. So what did they prioritize? Not building cities, not creating tools, not developing music. They prioritized worship. They pioneered what it means to worship God. The line of Cain uses God's grace to build cities. The line of Seth uses God's grace for something far more important. We have that same privilege. If we're believers, God has given us not just common grace, that he gives to all people, but he has gifted us with special grace. With a grace that we receive salvation from God and we receive grace to worship him. We worship God by faith so that when we do well and we worship God, he is pleased. The chief end or the chief purpose of our lives is to worship God and enjoy him forever. Because of the blood that speaks volumes louder than Abel's blood, Because of the blood of Jesus, we can worship God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of the Christian life. It's not to do a bunch of good stuff. It's not to to live the best that we can. It's to worship God and enjoy him. The greatest person there is, God himself, we get the privilege to worship and enjoy We do that through Jesus, the fulfillment of Genesis 3. Eve thought it was Cain, but sadly she was mistaken. And thousands and thousands of years later, the fulfillment of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. He gives up his life, he sheds his blood, and it speaks volumes of grace for us. He gave his life so that we could have freedom from sin, freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, 